I remember the way my Baba's fingers used to wrap around the handle of his cane as he stood, his other hand leaning on my shoulder. Having fallen twice, he had stopped trusting his feet, so he placed his faith in his hands and in me. Born in Bhopal and raised in Memphis, I chose to move back to Bhopal to live with my paternal grandfather, Baba, as I conducted my research. My decision to move back to India was just as much about spending time with Baba, really. The research was just the means to an end. People would ask me if I got bored living with him, and I honestly didn't. Every day at 10 a.m. sharp, we would read together. Every few minutes, I'd pause my reading to test how much he was actually listening. And he would quit back that I'm not his school teacher, and he was listening just as much as he wanted to. He forgot that I got my stubbornness from him. To you. Happy birthday, Jordan Baba! Happy birthday to you. Yay! Baba. Come on, our two-person celebration. Aapke janam din pe chal raha he was my best friend, comforting me when the pain of the tragedy overwhelmed me. After a long day interviewing survivors and activists, I'd come home feeling defeated, angry. He'd remind me that this tragedy was much bigger than me, that it wasn't my burden to bear alone. Our quiet life together suddenly ended a few months into my living with Baba. On December 23rd, four months into my Fulbright year, Baba died. This is the story of the Bhopal gas tragedy, of the men, women, and children who survived it, and the decades-long struggle for justice, compensation, and the right to clean drinking water. This is the story of the Bhopalis who were shaped, but not defined, by the disaster. Of hope, of resilience, and of memory. This is They Knew Which Way to Run. Please note that this podcast contains depictions of death and loss that some people may find disturbing. I'm Molly Mulroy. And I'm Apoorva Dixit. Episode 7. The Fighters Might Die, The Fight Never Will. This is our final episode of the series, and we'd like to take a moment to thank our listeners for taking this journey with us. For the finale, Apoorva, her dad, and I all sat down together for the first time in person in five years. All right. You ready? It is our first time, all three of us, me, my dad, and Molly, mm-hmm. in the same room in five years. Minimum. <laughs> Probably more like <laughs> ten. <laughs> but, but in specifically working on this podcast, the podcast has been long distance the whole time. And I've see, I haven't seen Molly for a good long time. Yeah. We reflected on this whole experience. This podcast is not exactly casual listening material. It is full of hard stories of tragedy and triumph. It's been a lot, and it can be tough to digest, 
So we figured we would share what we have made of it all. But so when she first decided to go, you were, you were excited for her to go to India? I find that a little hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. <laughs> Here's why, right? So it was, in a way, it was very good uh, thing that she was doing, right? <laughs> she was going back to her roots, trying to find out what was going on. My father was super excited that she is coming back. In fact, he was probably the happiest in his life in a long time. The problem, not the problem, the concern was which any dad would have, right? So having been grown there and know how things happen, I was kind of micromanaging some of that. For kind of. <laughs> kind of? And the reason being because she was right in my backyard, right? So I had all the connections to pull, right? So whatever she was doing, I could call somebody and make sure that happens. <laughs> <laughs> so sneaky. <laughs> no, I was trying to help her. She didn't like it. And some of the things she did, it, even you, if you look back, probably you would rethink if you would have done that, right? So. I mean, there have been at least five years between. I mean, do you right. feel like you would have done anything differently? Like if you went back now, your your experience with the research specifically would have been different at all? Um, I... It was a really hard year. Like everything that I know now, I don't I don't think I would sign up for a year like that again very easily. Um not to say that I have like any regrets um about having gone and spent my first year out of college that way. Like I I feel like, you know, obviously it was this like really formative experience but like I don't know like a lot of the things that Papa's talking about about you know being worried about they were tough <laughs> the patriarchy was real it was ever present you know they were like it was hard being a young woman in India um it was hard doing this research it was hard um like logistically emotionally in just like every sense of the word um so yeah, and I didn't I didn't fully appreciate that. When I first was like, I got this cool scholarship, I'm going to go now, Papa was like, you don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, how dare you? Like, I've done all this research, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm going to go now. By the time I got to India, I knew what I was capable of. At 22 years old, of course I recognized there were nuances that were beyond me. There still are. But at the same time, I was confident. I was really looking forward to proving myself. For non-resident Indians, a term so common it has its own acronym and our eyes, like me, India is often sold as a faraway place that is, above all else, unsafe. This is especially true for a young woman. There's only one sentence that I was told more frequently than being asked what the heck I was doing in Bhopal, and that was, that I do not know and I should not trust India. But the thing was, my physical safety was never really an issue my year in India. The real issue I faced was people underestimating me, underestimating my ability to bargain with a taxi driver, underestimating my ability to eat pani puri without getting typhoid, underestimating my ability to drive left hand, stick shift, in jam-packed Indian traffic. And most importantly, underestimating my ability to do this research. 
many of the stories I heard were crazy for me, as I'm sure they've been for our listeners. Sometimes I also wondered if I was capable of this kind of research. I often felt guilty at my reactions, at how much pain I was feeling from just listening to other people's pain. I couldn't even imagine what it felt like to actually go through it. But the thing was that many of these stories were old ones for the storytellers. They had lived through this decades ago, and they were forced to make it their normal. Then I lost Baba. And what had started out as an academic exercise began teaching me lessons on life. Of course, my loss was very different from that of gas survivors. Baba lived a long and full life. He was not taken by a human-made disaster. But it was my first experience with death and with grief. So what was it like living in his house after he had passed away? Honestly, it was a constant reminder of my loss. So I, I left, actually. I uh, lived in Mumbai for a month, and then I traveled around India for another. And I remember when I first got to football, my primary goal was to see if I could fit in, if I could get to a point where no one could tell that I didn't grow up here in football. And after Baba passed, I found myself resisting it. I found myself avoiding my research. I tried not to think about Pope Ball. So what was it like when you came back then? So my life in Pope Ball had shifted. It was completely different after um, the way my neighbors treated me. Um, even the way I thought about my research was different. You know, I, I thought about Rashida B and Rahana B and so many others losing their families, the lost memories of their elders, the memories that the young never got to form. Then, instead of avoiding my research, I decided to dive into it. Um, it was the only way to distract myself. I don't know. Then eventually I came to realize that it was only through remembering Baba that I would really be able to move on. Mm. I remember a quote you shared with me once from a Buddhist monk, Orma Chadron, um, about how accessing compassion means we have to break through our fear of pain. She says, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded. It's a relationship between equals. Only when we know our darkness can we be present with the darkness of others. Compassion becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, I think what really sticks with me about that quote is that compassion is about equals, not about the healer and the wounded. And that really allowed me to reframe my research from being a burden into being healing. It was not a burden for me to have to hear these stories. In a way, they were healing me. They were putting pieces that were missing from my family's history back into place. They were teaching me how to grieve. 
They were showing me how we carry our loved ones with us, always. Now, when I remember Baba, it's still tough, you know, even though it's been so many years, but I remember his love, and I remember an imperfect man whose legacy I proudly carry with me. They gave us a crumb so long ago, 25,000 rupees. What is 25,000? Just $352. The value of a human life is great. It is priceless. They didn't give us our right. Bunu B and other gas survivors are understandably angry with the compensation they received for the 1984 gas tragedy. Not only did the amount of money they were given pale in comparison to the original ask, but the way the legal drama unfolded really deprived them of closure as well. Um, And I think that's a a big part of the story is like the activists and the survivors, you know, felt silenced through the whole like legal process and the compensation process. So like it, it went beyond just like specifically logistically what can be done for them. You know, like there was this like massive silencing of them. An interesting modern day comparison is the current mass lawsuit against the Sackler family, the owners of Purdue Pharma, which caused the opioid crisis. Part of the settlement agreement was that the Sackler family had to spend an entire day listening to victim impact statements read by opioid addiction survivors and family members who lost loved ones. The Sacklers did not have to apologize or even show emotion, but they had to listen. Victims described this as a powerful day to NPR. They said it gave them closure to look the Sacklers in the eyes, to force the villains of their lives to acknowledge their humanity and to feel united with the other victims. It makes me think of Warren Anderson's quote in the New York Times that we mentioned in episode four. You know, the one where he's like, every morning you wake up and you think to yourself, did that happen? And you realize it did. That quote just makes me so angry. The man is so full of pity for himself for having caused this huge tragedy. And yet he never stood trial. He never took any accountability. The gas and water survivors never had the closure of looking him in the eye and truly telling him what he and his company did to them. So to this day, they burn him in effigy. Well, he knew which way to run, right? Warren Anderson, Union Carbide, more generally. Yeah, and it was honestly the perfect escape plan. Warren Anderson had no individual liability because it was the corporation's fault. And the corporation, Union Carbide, was bought by Dow Chemical. So now there's literally no corporation left to take responsibility. Having been deprived of justice from institutions, 
Activists in Bhopal have had to make their own justice. And they're not finished yet. Here's what Satu says are the top three goals that he and other survivors are fighting for at the Samhapna Clinic now. First thing is that have a system in which people can get better medical care and particularly the next generation gets medical care and rehab and including not just gas people but this I'm including the contamination affected people in, in this. That is the first thing. The second thing is that the hazardous waste should get removed. The Dow chemical should accept its liability under US and Indian laws and that is polluted pays principle and the there is no further spread of the uh, contamination and the third issue is that people still have not been paid adequate compensation those um, poisoned by water have not have not been paid anything at all so people should be paid adequate compensation so that they can get whatever years they have left, at least not, not in so much agony and misery. One of the things people have most commented on after listening to our podcast is how impressive Rashida B. and the other activist survivors' marches to Delhi have been. The women march was the tough one to listen to only because I know May and June in India, I know the heat. I can imagine these ladies without any money just marching and not having the money, not knowing where they'll stay the night, just keep going on, not knowing if they'll meet the prime minister. And then there's the snake story that you talk about. So, yeah, that was just for them to endure all of that and reach Delhi. That's Women typically are not let go of the household unless accompanied by males as such. So for these two leaders to have this kind of followership where all these women just decided to leave and march across India in June, that's just awesome. I don't think many people in Bhopal probably even realize that. The strength and conviction that it must take to be a part of those marches is truly awe-inspiring. But the key piece that's always been missing in the Bhopal movement are the institutions. Nobody in a position of power has gone out of their way to actually serve the gas survivors. And this is important. As we mentioned in episode five, there were all these political positions created in the local Bhopal government to address the tragedy. Gas tragedy, minister, etc. But the men put in these positions of power didn't really do anything for the survivors. They were just politicians making promises they didn't keep and denying the fact that the water crisis is even happening. Satu is clear about how disillusioned he is with the systems and structures society has in place. This report in 2017, October 2017, by the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health. And this showed that pollution was industrial pollution was responsible for 16% of deaths worldwide, which makes it one of the top five causes of death. And the 
fact is uh, about i would say close to 98% of this industrial pollution is deliberate corporate activity it's pollution is actually too gentle a word for uh, what should be corporate crime so in boardrooms people are discussing okay shall we let this go till this will disappear no one will notice so all this bopal is cooking in thousands and thousands of corporate boardrooms and this is what bopal points out because and the good thing is that there's so much of documentation of this that this is how things were done so i think to say that one sixth of the people are dying because of corporate crime and to show that it is the most ubiquitous and uh, most immunity prone crime i think it's a it's a one of the uh, most important things that the world has to know as uh, chemicalization goes and increases and there there are newer ways in which corporations are making profit by uh, imposing hazardous stuff on people People in power don't just decide out of compassion to make things better. They do it because people demand it. And that's the victory that the survivor activists in Popal have won over the last four decades. They have stood up and demanded compensation, demanded equal pay, demanded clean drinking water. But the thing is, activism needs to go hand in hand with institutionalized change. Rashida B, Satu, Vishnu Bai, Champa Devi, they were able to create new institutions in their communities to address the harm caused by Union Carbide in Bhopal. But there's only so much that they can do without the cooperation of existing institutions. And that's still a huge issue in Bhopal. Rashida B and Champa Devi can't physically remove the factory themselves. The government will have to acknowledge that the factory is still causing pollution. and decide to do something about it. The government will have to build infrastructure for clean drinking water. The government will have to change the education curriculum to tell the story of Bhopal. And as we heard from Satu before, there's still so much more that needs to be done. Many people have told the story of the Bhopal gas tragedy. But what they don't focus on is the victories and what the activists have accomplished in the years since 1984. Yeah, there have actually been a lot of movies and and books and and they all start, you know, before the tragedy and they all end the night of the tragedy. And I think My hypothesis is that the reason Bhopal hasn't gotten the attention it deserves is because that's the wrong spot to focus on. You know, it it makes it feel like it's all tragedy and disaster. 10,000 people dying in one night, it's too mind-boggling and it's easier to just make those victims into a statistic. Yeah, it's important to focus also on the positive outcomes and the inspirational stories of these activists 
to keep the story of Bhopal from just being the story of the tragedy, switching the narrative into, no, these are real people who are still alive. I think that's always been the missing element. Anytime people have tried to cover the story, it's just been from way too high of a vantage point. And at that high of a vantage point, even remembering Bhopal feels simultaneously like too much and not enough. Yes, it is painful. Yes, there were so many lives lost. But there is power in remembrance. It is healing. And it begins to give back the respect to the survivors whose stories have been discarded by the world. And I think that's part of the reason that we wanted to do this podcast, because, you know, it's not it's not really a call to action specifically. Right. We're not saying, oh, you should do this. When you learn about the tragedy, you should do X, Y, Z. And I think that's also why we wanted to include your voice and the voice of other survivors and the children of survivors, because, you know, as much as a Porva and I can talk about it all day long, like we weren't there, you know, I wasn't directly affected at all, you know, and, and hearing it, I think for, for Americans or just other people to listen to the actual voices of people who were there and who have suffered and reflect on that, that's, that's not necessarily going to lead to like direct change but allow for that sort of like reflection and and people to be like wow and listen to the strength listen to what these people went through and how they overcame it yeah see see the metaphors like there's so many you know parallels and metaphors that Bhopal provides like you're saying like every day we're you know seeing the same story play out again and again and again and I think if you forget history you're condemned to repeat it Yeah, absolutely. So it's important to remember, right? When Aporva started her research in 2017, she wanted to approach the academic side of things from the standpoint of autoethnography. Autoethnography is a term used in anthropology circles for when people go to a place that is special to them to better understand it. It's typically their hometown or their place of birth that has been through some tragedy or hardship. The goal is to try to understand what that tragedy meant, what it means to the people still living there, and what it means to society at large. Even from the beginning, Aporva intended for her story and her family's story to be a key piece of her research. Consciously or subconsciously, her decision to go back to Bhopal was as much about understanding the tragedy as it was about how her family remembered the tragedy and how other survivors remember it. Even before I got really interested in learning about the gas tragedy, I have always been really interested in learning about Bhopal. And even my like Common App essay for colleges was about Baba. I remember it. And yeah, and Bhopal. Uh, growing up in in our like bungalow on Judge Colony and and like right to right behind our bungalow is a slum. 
And growing up, I was always kind of taken aback by that, but like it made me feel bad, so I didn't look too closely. And so I ended up talking about that in my Common App essay, and I remember at the end of the essay, um, my English teacher at the time, Ms. Douglas, was kind of like, so what's the takeaway? So what have you done about this? And I was like, I'm 18. <laughs> I've done nothing about this. I've noticed it. I am aware of it. But that kind of stuck with me, you know? And I was kind of like, so what have I done about this? You know, like, I, I feel like I've always been very acutely aware of my privilege. I mean, I, I think a large a large motivator for going back to football and, and doing this research and this whole project was just like me processing my own like shock at not having heard about something this big. I think what all also gets lost in things like this is that I, I feel like we go it's either one extreme or the other. It's either like you're super privileged and you like weren't affected at all. And you know, it's like only the poor people that are affected and we're fine. Or it's the opposite. And people are like, well, you know, I went through it too and I'm just as affected. And oh my gosh, like, you know, like we're all victims. And, and I feel like kind of the point of this project was to figure out the middle ground, like the nuance of like, yeah, like you have these like really crazy memories. This is a major world event and we can't dismiss that by being like, oh, we're, you know, so privileged. Um, but at the same time, yeah, everything that came after was like totally different for our family compared to a lot of the people um, that I met in India. So it, it's, it's kind of like working through my own, you know, historical legacy, like family legacy. I grew up feeling a tension. The tension of being a gas survivor's daughter, and yet being so insulated by my privilege that far from experiencing the effects of the tragedy, I never even heard of it. And even after my year in Bhopal, even after this podcast, the tension remains. The tension of wanting to undo a tragedy that happened long before I was born, of wanting to undo all of the suffering, but that's not really possible. So the tension inside me ensures that I never forget the community of survivors and advocates whose conviction now gives me purpose. I can't resolve this tension, but I can channel it. The fight in Bhopal is far from over. The Union Carbide factory is still standing, just one of the many, many physical scars that remain, reminding Bhopali activists what they fight for. And the reality of these survivors is hidden from many other Bhopali citizens, and also from the rest of the world. Here is Shahzadi B, Ansuya Bai, and Rashida B. People are exhausted. They have fought and fought, but we still continue to. The government has not changed anything. They care less and less. Well, the fighters will fight. 
as long as satubaya rachna didi will fight i will fight alongside them the fight will never end the fighters might die but the fight will never die there are plenty of people in the world that want to spread poison especially in our india they are opening the doors to allow these people in and kill us and go without justice our thought is if our sisters recognize their strength women are so so strong then this world will change and we can save the world using our sisters effort and fight so that bhopal never happens again that's is our hope across from the union carbide factory gates a statue has been erected the statue is a woman running one arm hiding her face in a sob and the other clutching her child to her breast another child grabs the back of her dress trailing behind her Behind the statue stands the JP Nagar, no longer a slum, but a collection of homes painted in bright colors. The residents in this neighborhood suffer. They have been suffering every day since the tragedy in 1984 and before. But more importantly, they live. My social studies textbook in 7th grade was wrong. Bhopal is not the second worst industrial disaster in history. It's the worst. And it's ongoing. But that one sentence led me to a year of listening to the stories of Ashita B, Baba, my dad, and other survivors, which led me and Molly here to this podcast telling them to you. So now we'll leave you with the words of Hazrabi. I believe we have victory only when history remembers our fight. I want our stories printed in books coming generations will continue the fight by reading and remembering us. That will make sure Bhopal does not happen again You've been listening to They Knew Which Way to Run. Keep an eye on our social media for updates and new content, including a TEDx talk that Apoorva gave on the Bhopal gas tragedy coming out this summer. The talk was selected for special release by the National TED Conference for quote representing valuable and timely ideas for TED's global audience of 35 million subscribers. We encourage you to check out our website at www.theynewwhichwaytorun.com where you can learn more information about the tragedy, see photos of the survivors, and make a donation to NGOs on the ground still fighting for justice today. You can also read a transcript of this episode. This podcast series is written, edited, and produced by me and Molly Mulroy. Quinn Mulroy is our sound editor and associate producer. If you liked this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and follow us. All the interviews used in our podcast were conducted by Apoorva Dixit, 
both independently and while working with Sampavna Clinic and photographer Francesca Moore. Our head of marketing is Shreya Zoshi, our transcription specialist is Avi Dixit, our copy editor is Julia Hamilton, our cover art was designed by Amy Zhang, our website designer is Liliana Brusic, and all of our music is composed by Derek Renfro. Very big thank you to everyone who has supported us with this podcast, this episode and this whole series. And especially big thanks to the following Bhopalis for sharing their stories for this episode. Ashish Dixit, Pannobi, Satu Saturangi, Hazra B, Shazadi B, and Suya Bai, and Rashida B. Also, thank you to our voice actors, Mina Kesargad, Vertika Shukla, Garma Mishra, and Rachna Dixit. I'm Apoorva Dixit. And I'm Molly Mulroy. Thank you for listening. Thank you.